This summer, we, uh, if you're with us last week, you'll know that we're starting to look uh, at a series uh, that looks at covenants all throughout the scripture. And uh, that word covenant is not a, a word that's used a whole lot in our culture anymore. Um, but if you look at the scriptures, you'll see that that word covenant is really all over the place. Uh, one of the small instances I see is uh, our, I live in a neighborhood uh, that is right across the street from here. And when we moved into the neighborhood, we found out there was neighborhood covenants. I don't know if you've ever heard of these before, but uh, it, it, things you have to agree to uh, in case you want to live in that neighborhood. And there's rules about gutters, and there's rules about grass, and there's rules about fences. There's all sorts of rules all over the place. And so when you buy a house in this neighborhood, you have to sign that covenant saying that you will uh, abide by those rules. Now, everybody in the neighborhood hates them. Everybody complains about them. Everybody gets frustrated about them. And I complain about them as well. But at the end of the day, I agreed to the terms of that relationship. And uh, if you, what we've discovered is if you break the terms of that covenant, the only ever response you get is one of punitive punishment. You get these nasty little letters from the Neighborhood Association. Well, as we look at the word covenant in the scriptures, what we find is often when that word covenant is used in the scriptures, it isn't full of punitive uh, measures, it isn't full of punishment. Often it is full of grace and it is full of love. And as if you were with us last week, you'll know that we looked at uh, the covenant of creation last week. And this morning, we want to look at what's called the covenant of grace that will define the rest of God's story throughout the scriptures. So the passage we're going to read this morning is uh, Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading uh, verses 6 uh, to 21. So this is God's word. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the woman and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, 
and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your presence here with us. Uh, We pray that you would make good on your promise to speak to us through your word, to shape our hearts, to make us more and more into your image. So we pray that as over the next few weeks or moments we meditate on your word, that you would speak to our hearts boldly and change us, make us more and more like you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Our passage uh, this morning is probably one of the most foundational passages in all the scriptures. And what I mean by that is that if you don't properly understand what's going on here, uh, then the beauty of the story of the scriptures is almost lost in all of its entirety. Uh, If you ask any story writer or any storyteller, uh, they will tell you that you have to establish the problem before you can reach the climax of the story. In fact, if you don't establish it well, then the climax, when it comes, will really falter. And so that's true of God's story as well. We can only understand the sheer power of the story of redemption if we first understand the problem of sin and separation. So as we come to our passage this morning, we see our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we see that they were given a choice, and we see what they did with that choice. It says in verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The first covenant that we see in the scriptures is what's called the covenant of creation. And we saw this last week. Adam and Eve were created by God and they were given jobs to do. They were given a purpose for their lives. They were to rule all over the creation. They were to establish dominion over the creation. And through marriage and through fulfilling their calling, they were to build a culture that would glorify God in every aspect, in every way, build uh, all the elements of culture, like arts and education, all the pieces of it, they were called to build and to center it upon the glory of God. God's part was to bless them, and they were to enjoy the fullness of all of God's blessings that he had for them. And so their general responsibilities given to them were the source of their fullness and their bliss. They were people who were doing exactly what God had designed them to do, perfectly fulfilling God's will in their lives. And so they had these general responsibilities, but what we also saw last week is that they had one specific responsibility that took the form of a prohibition. 
There was all sorts of permission in the Garden of Eden, but there was one prohibition. They were not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that tree would serve a purpose. It would be a perpetual reminder to them that they were not the highest authority in their lives. It would remind them that they were a creation and that there was a God who was their creator. And their responsibility was to submit to his word and his authority in all things. And so as you look at Adam and Eve, our first parents, you see that they are completely free. This is humanity when it is truly free. They had the freedom to choose the path of submission to the will of God, and they had the freedom to rebel against God's perfect will. And of course, as we come to Genesis 3, we know what they chose. Instead of submitting to God's will, they chose to uh, engineer a coup, as it were. They were not content to live under God's authority for their lives. Instead, they wanted to be their own authority. They wanted to, to be their own gods, and their pride and their desire was more important to them in that moment than the will of a God who loved them dearly. And so we're used to hearing about this story, and when theologians call, uh, talk about this story, they call it the fall of man, a time when man rebelled against God. But I think there's even more going on in this story than what we often think about. Because not only were Adam and Eve rebelling against God, but they were also choosing to live according to a lie and to reject the truth that God had given them. They were in many ways believing a rival and counterfeit viewpoint when it came to what a lot of theologians call the good life or human flourishing. And here's what I mean by all this. All of us sitting here have all sorts of desires, right? We're desiring beings. And almost all of us desire to live a good life, right? Very few of us wake up each day and say, I want to really live a bad life today. We don't think that way. We say, I want to live a good day and I, I want to live a good life. I want to flourish as a human being. And we have this picture of what the good life is and we orient our lives and, and we think that once we've arrived at that picture, then everything will be right in the world. Once I arrive at that picture of the good life, then I will be who I exactly want myself to be. Now, for some, the good life means all sorts of different things. For some, it can mean a certain kind of socioeconomic status. And so if that's your picture of the good life, then you're going to work really hard. You're going to climb the financial ladder until you reach that socioeconomic status. For others, it might mean something different. For, for others, it might mean the good life is, is having two kids and a dog and a white picket fence, and so they live and they make all sorts of decisions oriented according to their picture of the good life. Maybe for some, that picture is career success. Maybe for others, it's, it's political uh, uh, position. For others, it could be a cultural influencer. It can be all sorts of things, and we make all sorts of sacrifices so that we can attain that picture of the good life. You see, our picture of the good life winds up influencing our deepest desires and influencing our behaviors. 
Now, the irony of the story is this. Adam and Eve were living the good life. They were living the good life in the Garden of Eden, full of the bliss and the blessings that came from living that life. They had a perfect relationship with God, their creator. They had a perfect relationship with each other. They had a perfect relationship with the creation that was all around them. And yet, what did they do? They chose to believe a lie. The serpent, of course, had a lot to do with what that lie was. And here was the lie that they chose to believe in that moment. They believed that God was somehow holding them back from achieving the good life. That there was more to be had for them than what could be found in their relationship with God. And so, of course, the essence of sin, what we call sin, is pride and it is rebellion. But the essence of sin is also believing in the wrong things or believing in lies. It's believing that somehow God is holding out on you or keeping you from the blessings that he has for you. It's believing that you somehow need to to define and attain the good life for yourself. And friends, I don't know about you, but we believe these sorts of lies all of the time. One of the the nicknames that's given to Baltimore, and I don't know where this came from, maybe some of you can can tell me, but one of the nicknames of Baltimore is this is the land of pleasant living. Have you ever heard that before here in Baltimore? There is some irony to that, but it's often called the land of pleasant living. And uh, specifically in some of the neighborhoods around here, they are wonderful places to live, Uh, They're places of all sorts of affluence. There's places of wealth and culture that are really all around us. And if you often talk to many of the people in some of these nicer neighborhoods here in Baltimore, they would tell you that they are experiencing their version, at least, of the good life. And what makes that particularly tricky is that when you talk to them about matters of faith, they're not necessarily antagonistic to the faith. They are generally not even out to sort of prove you wrong because of your commitment to the faith. They just don't believe that a life with God could be any better than the good life that they are already uh, experiencing or they have already attained. So why take the risk? Why take the risk and follow a relationship with God? And see, that should serve as a warning to all of us that, that, that there's a propensity to wealth and, wealth and affluence that blind us and deceive our hearts. They give us a counterfeit or rival picture of what the good life is all really about. That's why when Jesus came along, he said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying this, blessed are those who realize that left to ourselves, we make a mess of our lives. And so we need God to lead us to the good. And so friends, every day people reject the faith, believing that the good life is found elsewhere. Every day, even tragically, people of faith leave the faith, unconsciously believing that God is somehow holding back on them when it comes to the good life. That somehow they didn't get what they wanted from God or that God isn't getting on board with their plan for the good life. And so many walk away 
buying into a rival story, realizing that by walking away, they're walking away from the very thing their hearts most desire. C.S. Lewis understood this. He said this, when we want to be something other than the thing God wants us to be, we must be wanting what in fact will not make us happy. He used an illustration to describe this as, 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 as people being content to play in the mud when a vacation at the sea is offered to us by God. You see, the covenant of creation tells us that the good life is found in a right relationship with God. It's found in submitting to his will and in his plan for our lives. But when we believe lies, when we rebel, when our pride gets the best of us, we reject the path that actually leads to human flourishing. We reject the truly good life. And so Adam and Eve, they not only rebelled, but they believed in a lie. And because of that, there were all sorts of consequences. And the consequences you read about are in verses 14 to 19. First, there's a lot of personal consequences for Adam and Eve before the formal consequences even come. And the first is fear. This is really the first instance you see of fear in all of humanity. And because of fear, Adam and Eve did what? They hid in the garden because they were now afraid of God. And so that was one personal consequence. The other consequence is shame. They realized that they were naked. They were ashamed, and so they decided to cover themselves. And what we also see here is the first instance of assigning blame. Here that uh, apple or whatever the fruit is is lying half eaten on the ground, and yet it's nobody's fault. Nobody was to blame for what had happened because everyone was assigning blame to someone else. So you see blaming, you see fear, you see shame. These are everyday occurrences that you and I experience day in and day out. But here Adam and Eve are experiencing them for the very first time. These things that wind up ravaging society, we see them here in their perfect original form at the very beginning. But we also see that there are all sorts of formal consequences to this as well because Adam and Eve had done what? They had violated that covenant of creation. They had violated those original terms. That covenant of creation had been broken. And so what does God need to do? God needs to come and redefine the terms of his relationship with them. As I thought about it this week, I thought the best illustration, as hard as it is to think about, I think the best illustration of this is what we observe from time to time in cases of marital infidelity. When a husband cheats on a wife or a wife cheats on a husband. And of course, there's all sorts of carnage that happens in a marriage when there is adultery or where there is infidelity. But imagine a case where a spouse cheats on the other spouse. And uh, the, 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 the adultery has come to light and, and they're living in the consequences of all this. And imagine uh, one of the spouse comes in confession and says, I've done something wrong, I've done something terrible, I need you to forgive me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the other spouse may or may not forgive them for what they've done. But imagine they are forgiven and then the offender says, well, let's go back to things just like they were. What do you think the other spouse is going to say? They're going to say, we can't do that. The relationship has changed. 
We need to redefine the terms of this relationship because our covenant of marriage has been violated. You see, friends, the scriptures all throughout call sin a spiritual infidelity. And so what you see in Adam and Eve here is a spiritual infidelity. And so their terms with their relationship with God now need to change. And God comes to them with the new terms of that relationship. He outlines uh, curses for the serpent in verses 14. Uh, in verse 14. In verse 16, he outlines the consequences for Eve. There will be pain in childbirth. There'll be a contentious relationship when it comes uh, to the authority between her and her husband. And then finally, in verse 17, God outlines the consequences for Adam, and it includes all sorts of work and toil that will characterize really the rest of his life. You see, Adam and Eve had bought into a counterfeit picture of the good life. And at the end of the day, all that it did was bring them pain. They thought they were pursuing happiness, but in the end, all it brought them was heartache. And so God establishes this covenant of creation with Adam and Eve. They violate that covenant. So every other dealing with mankind from this point on would have to come from the foundation of grace. And that, friends, is what I think is most remarkable about this section of Scripture. That even though Adam and Eve had violated this most precious covenant, what we see in God is a rush to demonstrate his grace. That word grace, whenever it is used in the scripture, means unearned or unmerited favor. It is, it is getting what we clearly do not deserve. And so what you see in Genesis chapter three is even in the midst of God's punishment for Adam and Eve, we see that the grace of God is on display. When you think about it, the fact that even that the, the whole thing displays God's grace, that even that God would uh, immediately enter into another relationship with them is a demonstration of God's grace. He could have immediately brought them to their end because what, after all, did they do to deserve life? Maybe God could have given them the silent treatment. Let me just ignore them for a little while and they'll just wind up destroying each other. But instead, what you see here is that even in the midst of their sin, God pursues after them. They want to hide, but God pursues them. He doesn't end the relationship. Instead, what he does is he comes to them to establish a new covenant, a new terms of his relationship with them. So once again, God's gracious initiative and love is on display because even in our sin, he pursues after us. Verse 21 tells us this. It says that the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. You see, what the passage tells us is that Adam and Eve had made a futile attempt to cover over their sin and their shame. And in the end, it didn't really help them at all. So what does God do? He comes and he clothes them. In what can only be a, a foreshadowing of the Old Testament sacrificial system, God kills an animal and he covers them. He covers over their shame. 
Friends, we do the same thing that Adam and Eve did. We try to cover over our sin, just like our first parents did. We often refuse to take any sort of blame, making our sin the fault of everyone else who's around us. We hide behind all sorts of things, never truly admitting to who we are. We bear the burden of that shame. We try to cover it up. But friends, all of our coverings are futile in the presence of an holy God. Instead, we need God to come in his grace and to cover over our sin. And that covering, the gospel tells us, comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, our rescuer. Many people see uh, in that verse 315, Genesis 315, uh, the seeds of the gospel story, the hint of a coming savior. Right in the middle of all of the judgment, we see the promise of a rescuer, one whose heel will be bruised, but one who at the end of the day will gain victory over sin and death. And so what we see here is that God's grace shines brightly even in the darkest of moments. From now on, all of God's dealings with humanity, all the other covenants will come from the foundation of God's grace. From now on, the only way you and I will ever be able to relate to God is through the foundation of the grace that he gives to each and every one of us. And what that also means is that the only path to human flourishing, the only path to the real and true good life is through God's amazing grace given to us by faith through grace. And so friends, don't believe the lies that are all around us. Don't believe the counterfeit or rival stories that clamor for our hearts and our desires and our attention every single day. Know the truth of the scriptures that tell us this, that the only good life can really and only truly be found in a right relationship with God. But also recognize this, that only a right relationship with God can be found through the cleansing overwhelming flow of grace that he pours into our lives. Let's pray.